Chapter 7 of The Gentle Persuasion This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Gentle Persuasion Sketches of Scottish Life by Alan Gray Chapter 7 Bromscondy I do not suppose that one out of every ten Scotsmen has ever heard of Bromscondy, seeing that it is only a little bit of a place. I call it a village, but the inhabitants thereof dignify it with the appellation of town, occupying an obscure corner of what many regard as the most obscure county on the east coast of Scotland. At the present time, it has little about it to attract notice from the busy world around. But this was not always the case. In the days when the stern and masterful Douglases were lords paramount of that part of the country, when princes and favourites long grew tame and trembled at the holy name of Archibald Bell the Cat, Rumscondy was a burg of barony, owing allegiance to them. Its baron, Bailey, who was their appointee, held his courts there, and executed summary judgment when the need arose. Its chapelry, dedicated to St. John the Baptist, was an appanage of the parish church of St. Michael of Glendouglas, the rector of which held a primbendal stall in the cathedral of St. Andrews. In the 18th and in the early days of the 19th century, the village was a center of the domestic hand-loom industry and boasted a population of 500 souls. By the time that I became its rector, the weaving trade was little more than a memory, but there were still not a few roofless cottages that were pointed out as the weaving shops of worthies whose names were quoted with unction by the fathers of the village. They must have been a lively lot, these old weavers. I can recall vividly, as if it were yesterday, a night I spent by the bedside of old David Grant, who soon afterwards passed over to the great majority. My wife had stayed with him during the first watch, and had gone home, leaving her patient sleeping peacefully. I was sitting by the peat fire, reading, when a sound from the box bed caused me to spring to my feet. The old man had got out of bed, and was making his way to the outer door, a stout oaken cudgel in his hand. I sprang forward to intercept him. As I could see, he was in a state of delirium, and, should he get outside, it might mean sudden death from exposure. I managed to get in front of him, and was about to push him backwards towards the bed, when he raised the stick and aimed a blow which would have felled me had it fallen on my head. Closing in upon him, I managed, after a struggle, to get him back 
among the blankets where he lay panting. Where were you going, David? I said. Could ye not leave me alone, man? I was going down to Lucky Biggs to read the row. There's a fact on among the wafers, and they'll kill we Johnny Chisholm. We can hide his aim if he gets fair play. But there's a boat, half a dozen of them at him. What'll folk think if I'm no there when they're sick on guns? When David was well and was able to hold a conversation, he beguiled many an evening for me with his reminiscences of bygone days. It was from him that I got the bulk of my information regarding my own church when I first settled down there. I can tell you more better than me, Mr. Gray. I was born here and brought up here, and uh, although I've been a bit of a roving blade, I've spent the most of my days here. There's the remains of either three Episcopal kirks here. Ye can that old dyke o' stains and clay? Well, that was the back way, or the hoose that was used for a kirk when Maester Petrie was the minister in the forty-five. But when the bloody Cumberland came by, on his road to fat Prince Charlie, he set fire to the old biggin and took Maester Petrie doon to Steinhive, where he put him into the jail doon outside the harbour. There was either twa ministers in the jail with him. And what do you think the Episcopalians did when they wanted to get their barons baptised? They stood outside the jail window on a bit of rock, and any o the men that was a gay strong child held up a fisher's creel with the barony in it, and the minister baptized it through the bars of the jail window. Well, after the awful defeat at Culloden, the Episcopalians had to keep very quiet, for you see, their religion was proscribed. No, and then the Bishop Watson would come ruin with his gay old gig and hard a service in some of the houses. But he was watched so closely by the government folk that he could not even carry his communion vessels except in a secret box below the seat of the gig. Uh, ye ken that pewter cup and plate in the press in your vestry, that belonged to Bishop Skinner, the son of old Tullock Gorham. Mourn is the time that he's used it here when he would be wasting some of his friends. About 1790, Things were a wee bit quieter, and they got another kirk. That's its bigot on the to the gable or the home. 
I can mind my old mother taking me there to a service when I was a bairn. It had an outside stained stair that led up to the gallery. We were sitting in the gallery and I was putting out because I let me ball down on the heads of the folk below. <laughs> Seen in the year after Waterloo, they begit the old kirk that is no a part of your parsonage. I helped to dig the foundations right. Oh man, but the Episcopalians were prude when it was bigot. The mist of the weavers came through to worship, aye, and they came free of the fishing tunes along the coast. Many a time I have been sent by John Duncan, the beadle, to see if the fishers were near at hand, afore he would begin to ring the last bell for the morning service. Your present kirk, oh, it was bigot about twenty years ago. Aye, it's a real bonny kirk. But uh, for me, I uh, like it the old ain best. You can easily understand how deeply interested I was in all this local church history and how I valued the honor of serving in such historic ground. Sometimes David's reminiscences took a distinctly secular turn. He would tell me of the old coaching days when the four-in-hand, tooled by Archie Hepburn in scarlet coat and top boots, passed through the village twice a week and was the only regular event of importance in their quiet lives. How, as soon as the toot of the guard's horn was heard, every weaver flung down his shuttle and hurried to the Douglas Arms to get the newspapers and hear the news. And how, in Lucky Beg's bar parlor, there was keen competition for the honor of entertaining the coachman and guard. There was a plenty of home-brewed ale on coach days, David would say. Indeed, he hardly ever saw anybody the war would. And such a colosangy there would be, ilk any trying to get the news that most interested him. Peter Wiley. Man, what a creator he was. Aye. Argue no boot politics. He was terrible tain up about the reform bill, and boarded to ken the latest news about it. And certainly there was Jamie Paulson. Jamie was an elder, and was awful keen on the patronage question that brought in the disruption of the Free Kirk in eighteen forty-three. Money a wordy war did Archie and him hey about that. I tell you, Mr. Gray, there was some stir in the tune on coach days, and even when the coach set out down the south road to Imbro, there was little mere work doing that day. Most of the weavers were also crofters, 
and farmed a few acres of land, enough to provide them with oatmeal for the year and a winter's feed for the cows that supplied the family with milk. There was a piece of common land called the bogs, and every crofter had a right to pasture his cow there. A boy collected the cattle by the blasts of a well-battered horn, and driving them before him to the pasture land, herded them there till noon. The whole band reformed in procession and retraced their steps to their respective byres, where buxom matrons in subacket mooches relieved them of their burden of milk. In the afternoon the same program was gone through, and so it went on, through the long sunny days of summer and autumn, and was only discontinued when the snows and frosts of winter made grazing out of the question. To one who had spent a number of years amid the din and dust, the sins and sorrows of city life, this return to Arcadian simplicity was very welcome. Seven very happy years I spent there, and many a valuable lesson did I learn from the descendants of the loyal churchmen who had stood by their lawful prince in his hour of need, and had given loving and devoted heed to the godly teaching of their faithful, though persecuted, pastors. It was in these days I began to realize the full import of Tertullian's words. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and the more we are mowed down, the more we grow. The older generation of church folks were church folks from stern conviction. They would let nothing stand between them and the apostolic faith. I had not been long settled in Drumscondi when I had an opportunity of noting the soundness of the early training that had been given to those old folks by my predecessors of long ago. Old Sandy Barris, who had been the treasurer of the congregation for over half a century, was nearing his end, and I called to see him. After reading the service for the visitation of the sick, I talked to him for a little, and in the course of conversation, I received this bit of advice. Whatever he do, Mr. Gray, Teach the barons, the collects, and the psalms. When I was young and strong, I thought that as this learning by rote was just nonsense, a parrot could do that. But, sir, since God has laid me down on a bed of sickness, and often I am no able to get a bit o' sleep the hail nick through. I am more than thankful that I can say the psalms and the church's prayers without a book. They've been a great comfort to me. It was not many days before I was sent for to administer the Holy Communion for the last time to this faithful old churchman. I shall never forget the scene. 
that greeted me when I entered the room. It was on the feast of the conversion of St. Paul, and there had been a celebration in church. We used the old Scotch communion office at Drumscondy, which provides for reservation for the sick. And so I wended my way through the village, carrying the communion vessels. All who saw me knew whither I was going, and no one spoke. When I entered the sick chamber, I felt as if I were entering a sacred place. Everything was so spotlessly neat and clean. The dying man was slightly raised in bed, and his eager look betokened anticipated joy and peace. A small table, covered with an immaculately white cloth, had on it a bowl of beautiful winter flowers. None in that household knew anything of what is now known as Catholic ritual, but they had a grip of the Christian verities that made them instinctively do everything in decency and order. Aye, more, they recognized the special presence of the divine, and no trouble was too great to give expression to the honor which was to be theirs. Sandy Barris was my first friend in Drumscondy. No one respected my office more than he, and when he gave me his counsel, as he often did, it was never in a dictatorial way, but as an aged servant of God would advise a young brother and seek to keep him from falling into such mistakes as are liable to spring from inexperience. He was my first, but by no means my only, staunch friend in my new charge. Of some of the others, I may speak another day. End of section 7 Read by Carrie Adams Your Book Voice Mesa, Arizona, August 21st, 2021.